At the heart of every movie made are the screenwriters, the director, and what is shot and seen on the screen, which is the work of the director of photography. Today, we have with us a director of photography for Quantum of Solace, Roberto Schaefer. Hi, this is Tom Pizzotto. And Dan Silvestri. From SpyMovieNavigator.com. And today, on our Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, we're going to chat with Roberto Schaefer. Roberto has been the director of photography in many other great films, including Finding Neverland, Monsters Ball, Stay, as well as three of Christopher Guest's great comedies. Now, in this podcast, we're going to focus a lot on Quantum of Solace, but we'll also discuss his body of work and how that may have impacted Quantum. We have so much to talk about. This will be a two-part podcast with Roberto. So let's get on to part one. Let's go. We are so excited and honored to have with us today a very special guest, the Quantum of Solace Director of Photography, Roberto Schaefer. Welcome, Roberto. Hi, everybody. Welcome, Roberto. It's great to have you here. And we must say, we've been very impressed with your body of work, not just Quantum, just fantastic stuff. And we're going to mention a few of these movies and films as we go along through our questions here. But we just wanted to bring that up up front that your body of work is great. And And it's really diverse, too, which is nice. Yeah. 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 Well, that's what helps keep us uh, keep me going. Yeah. If you did the same thing over and over and over again, I think I would just fall asleep. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's really great stuff. So we're we're big Bond fans, of course, and spy movie fans. That's why Tom and I are doing what we're doing here. And the Bond franchise has been a juggernaut for decades now. So for Quantum, who first approached you about doing the film? And what was your reaction, Roberto? I got a phone call from Mark Forster, who the director that I'd already done, see, seven films with at that time, okay. I think. He called me one day. I was sitting here. He called me. He was in New York. He says, uh, I'm, you know, I'm in New York and I just had a meeting with Barbara Broccoli and Michael uh, Wilson about directing the new Bond film. What do you think about that? And I said, really? I said, oh, my God. Yeah, let's do it. And he said, yeah, but the problem is like there's no real script. It's not finished. It's not really good. A little worried about getting in on something that and there's a writer's strike and I don't know what's going to happen. It says I haven't seen a good script yet. And I said, Mark, it's a Bond film. Does it really matter? And he says, yeah, well, let me let me think about it. Let me see. And so then I, I called Matt Chesse, who's been the editor since Monsters Ball. And um, I said, Matt, did you, did you talk to Mark about this, doing the Bond film? He goes, yeah. He says, oh, God, we've got to do this Bond film. Are you kidding? I said, yeah, it's been like since childhood. It's like, it's history. It's a, it's a dream. And he said, we've got to convince him. So then Mark had another meeting with them and called back again and said, so I'm thinking about doing it. Yeah, I had another meeting. I'm thinking about doing it. You guys think, and I said, yes, do it. Let's do it. Whatever, whatever. Come on, we'll make <laughs> it work. Bond. We'll make it work. It's Bond. They've got money. We can make a great film no matter what. Yeah. Let's just do it. You, you, we'll, I think we'll all be the saddest people on earth if we turn down an opportunity <laughs> to do a Bond film. Oh, exciting. It's Yeah, it was. And then when we finished it, before it got released and everything, he said to me, in confidence, he says, you know, they've offered me to do the, the next one too, but uh, I don't think I'm going to take it because just because of the way this one went with the script and everything else and all that. And so I said, wow. I don't know. I don't know. Think about it. I would love to do another one, yeah. but he, he passed. Okay. Cause he wanted to, he wanted to get involved next with something where he could be a producer on. 
Uh-huh. Okay. okay. And be part of a franchise, which, you know, the Bond films, you're, you're a hired director and oh, yeah. prestige and that's it. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. From the outside world as viewers of movies, we don't think about this very much. So for all of our benefit, what exactly is a director of photography responsible for? Well, that's a big <laughs> question with a lot of caveats. Yeah, I'm sure. But according to the, to the book, which I would say is the ASC manual, the director of photography is supposed to be responsible for everything visual imagery on the screen, including the lighting, the camera setups, the choice of coverage, the framing, camera movement, lens choice, positioning, and all of that. But it also depends definitely on who your collaborators are because we are there for the director in the end. Sure. And uh, some directors are very, very specific and technical about what they want and what they don't want. And others just leave it up to you to do what you do best and tell the story with the camera. Okay. So you've got the director of photography title for a lot of, the, a lot of your movies, but we also see the second unit director of photography. What, what does that split look like? And does that person actually re, kind of report to you or do they report to their own director? I don't understand the hierarchy there. Okay. Well, second unit director of photography works under the main unit. They're generally used when the main unit can't cover that much work or stuff is done in disparate locations Mm -hmm. or if it's specialized work like miniatures or action units on all the films that I did up until I think the first time I even had any second unit director of photography work was on the kite runner. Okay. And that was because we needed some, we needed somebody to stay behind and do some shots of traveling shots of cars driving and a few things like that, that we just couldn't, we didn't have time to wait for because we were out in the wilds of Western China and we had to keep moving. But on all the other movies that I've done, I did all the, what would be called second unit work, all the action shots, all the car chasing and all that stuff. On a bigger movie like Quantum of Solace, where there's a lot of action, be it car or hand-to-hand or airplane or whatever. And I always feel it's best to get somebody who's a specialist, who knows what they're doing, who's, that's what they do. They do it best and they can do it probably in half the time that I could do it and probably better. So in pre-production or when they're hired, you have a meeting with them and you go over the scenes that they're going to shoot and what they're going to shoot. They look at the stuff that you've shot or that you talk about the stuff you're going to shoot that goes together with the scenes that are either intercut or cut after or before, or just to get the basic look. The idea, it's a challenge. Being a second unit DP, which I just did some this last year, it's a challenge because you have to, you want to do what you can, your best, but you also have to make it seamlessly match into the first unit photography because sometimes it really is intercut shot for shot. And sometimes it's, it's a scene that's in, stuck in and sometimes it's a complete standalone, but you really, it, it, if it stands out separate, then it's, it's kind of really a mistake. Yeah. Like on, on Quanto Solace, I had meetings with Sean O'Dell mm-hmm. and Dan Bradley, who was hired as director, uh, second unit director because he specialized in car chases. I don't know if you've looked up his IMDB, but he's among the best. He did big, big car chases, like in all the Bourne movies, yep. the Moscow subway thing and all that but he's also done the very simple ones that really get you like an adaptation 
and Pulp Fiction. Those suddenly just, they hit you. So we had long discussions and Dan and, and Mark and I sat down for a few days in my guest house before going to England and talked about that opening scene that Dan was going to do the directing on. And then when we got to England, we hired Sean O'Dell. We hired, interviewed a few people. We had to hire local. That was part okay. of the, the bond edict is you have to hire British, right. British, British, British. Right. Couldn't bring anybody with us. So they That's let us bring Dan. Scene, so. Yeah, no, it's well. an amazing it's amazing scene. Did a great job. We did pre-visit a bit. We did, you know, talk about how it should be done. Talked with Dan about some camera angles and some things to make the car look for mysterious stuff at the very beginning of it. But in the end, you got to give in to let them do what, what they do best. And Dan knows what he's doing. And he was able to make it match well enough that all the interior shots of, of Daniel in the car driving the close-ups were all done back on Pinewood on green screen or blue screen. So it matched beautifully, done really well. They yeah, did all the perfect. plates they needed. Then other second unit stuff like on Quantum, Panama or Haiti boat chase scene. Yeah. Okay. Simon Crane was the director on that. All right. And um, we brought in one of my friends who I think is one of the best second unit DPs in the world, Josh Blybetrow, uh, brought him to shoot it. And we discussed, and we were there at the same time. So we were both in, in Panama, in Cologne, shooting we were shooting dialogue scenes and action other action scenes while they were in off to shoot the boat we would they come back they'd show us some you know footage that they shot we'd say well can you do this can you do that and they got some great stuff on a boat chasing and all that so there was a, a very close contact there but you don't always have that that close okay close yeah, relationship. I was, I was and on concerned. um since then you know yeah no, oh, go, go ahead uh, I was just trying to think since, since then on other movies that I've had second unit. I had second unit on, on the host because it was all that helicopter chasing stuff. And we had two of the best helicopter people in the world, Fred North, the pilot, and right. uh, Dylan Goss, the aerial DP. My thing is whenever you can get somebody to do better work than you can mm -hmm. or action or anything like that, do it. I don't have an ego involved in that. And we ran into those problems on the Red Sea Diving Resort. Right. Where we had, I know the producer probably doesn't want to hear this, but I've said it out loud a couple of times already in, in the press, I think. The producers were trying to save money in prep. And we had already scheduled to have Vic Armstrong and his action unit do. That's a good action unit. He's a good action unit. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the Red Sea Diving Resort. Yeah, I did. Yeah, you know, the big, the chasing towards the end with the airplane that goes over and all yep. that. Okay, all that stuff was supposed to be done by Vic Armstrong okay. and some of the other action stuff. Well, they decided to save $225,000 by taking his unit out of the show. Oh. So they just cut that out of the, and now we had an extra $225,000. But they weren't changing the, the schedule. Oh, man. They weren't changing anything. So now it was up to us, first unit, to shoot all that in the same amount of time. And I kept saying to them, wow. we're not a action unit. And I had some very challenging camera crew operators that were not really action guys. And there's some real specialized stuff that you do when you're doing action and a director who knows what they're doing. Well, Gideon, as wonderful a director as he is, and he knew shots that he wanted, he's still thinking more. He's, we're spending our time doing more about the, the drama and all of that. And, and trying to squeeze this into a schedule that was absurd. So the South African production company producer, 
who had been an AD in his past and always wanted to be a director, decided he was going to direct the second unit. And let me just tell you that the action in that scene and the action in the movie is kind of blah. Okay. It's not really exciting. Yeah. It's not done as well as it should have been done. And they went out three or four times over and over again, once or twice because of fog, they couldn't shoot too much, but Gideon asked for specific shots and they would come back and he goes, well, where is that? And they go, Oh, well, we didn't really think that, you know, it was, <laughs> it was not a, so second unit to me is you've got to have the best and right. they've got to be on the same page as the first unit and they can up the game, suggest, talk to them, let them know what you're doing and do that. Igor Meglich is, is a great second unit DP. Simon Crane has been a great second unit director, as has Dan Bradley. I mean, to me, the best is, and I'm spacing on his name now, we originally were going to use him on Quantum, but uh, he was being offered a movie to direct first unit by Ridley Scott. He usually chooses, chooses all the uh, second unit for Ridley. He's, uh, God, and I have a picture of, of us together at, at one of the festivals. He's a director cameraman. So okay. he's amazing second unit he's the best in the world as far as i'm concerned yeah. but he was going to do the ridley movie so and then that fell apart so we never got to do it so but we lost him i suggested getting him in for second unit for the red sea diving resort and they were hemming and hawing and they just didn't want to spend the money yeah. you know and it was a to me it was a big mistake because mm -hmm. they ended up cutting the movie as an action movie more than a human drama movie right they cut so much of the human drama out because Long story, but the contract deal was that it had to deliver a two-hour cut. Couldn't be over two hours, including right. titles. And the movie ran with all the proper scenes and the real human drama. It ran about two hours and 35 minutes, I think. Yeah. But he couldn't, they wouldn't accept it. So he had to cut 35 minutes out. Yeah. So they wanted to keep the action in. Yeah, that's too bad because that really is a, I mean, the human, the human side of that story is really quite amazing when you look yeah. at all those refugees and what happened there. Yeah. And, and what happened and, and the, the internal thing between all the different members of the Mossad group, these agents who had yeah. their histories, so much of their histories were taken out so much of the conflicts between them and all that. And it became a, I mean, I, I still like the movie. I think it's still right. a good movie, but it lost, it lost a lot of the, 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 the spice and the, the, the tendons and all the stuff that really, makes something that you really just want to keep watching everything okay yeah that, that's too bad yeah now, let me let me actually kind of shift back a little bit to quantum here because sure. we're talking about the different roles and one role we really haven't talked much about is the camera operator yes so in quantum i know in other in other movies you've done some uh operating have you did you do any operating in in, in uh, quantum yeah on quantum i did basically see camera whenever there was a third camera needed because I was, there was so much to deal with. And I had, you know, I was watching monitors for the first two cameras. I had two really good operators on that show who were, you know, exceptional. And I, I don't want to do so much of this fast running around handheld anymore. And George Richmond was great at that. Okay. Got him recommended by Chivo from after he had done Children of Men. Okay. And he came on. And then Mark Milsom, who had been a camera assistant for me on Finding Neverland, was operating and he's a great operator was he passed away a couple of years ago unfortunately in a bad accident in africa but yeah so i i did see camera you know we did a lot of third camera stuff especially on the action all the action scenes that, that we were involved with like the blowing up the hotel yeah. the interior blowing up that slow motion thing with the camera tracking across on a wire yeah, with yeah. all the glass breaking 
and all yeah, that. that we had like five setup. cameras on that. Yeah. I always wonder how many cameras is five about the maximum you use or is there? I think so. Yeah. I think so. We carried, you know, like two silent cameras, a two, three, five and a four, three, five. Mm-hmm. And then we had probably two LTs and an ST okay. at all times. Well, in quantum, when you're prepping for the filming, is there such a thing as a typical day or, <laughs> or is that a crazy <laughs> no. idea? <laughs> no, there's nothing typical on, I mean, there's no typical days really on any movie I'd say, because in prep, and we had a nice long prep on that. I think it was four months, Okay. 12 or 16 weeks of prep, but there was a lot to include in that it meant two trips through Europe and to South America to look for locations and to tech scout the locations, a pre-scout in Italy and Switzerland and Austria before we even did our real scout. And then all the time back at Pinewood in prep, going through the script, Mark and I sit down every day as we did on every movie before that since Monsters Ball, we would go through the script and work out every shot, every scene, every camera position and layout and how to do it. So when we got on set, we had a book, a Bible with everything in it, of where we were, how we wanted to shoot. So the ADs also knew which direction to shoot first and when we were going to turn around and all that. Yeah. Uh, so we spent every day doing that for months. And we also had then, you know, you get all these meetings in between. There's a meeting with the costume designer. There's a meeting with the VFX people. There's a meeting with the special effects people. There's a meeting with the props guy. There's a meeting with the other, with the set decorator. There's a meeting with, you name it. Right that Mark had his meetings, I had my meetings, and we had our meetings together. You know, and then you have to go out and suddenly, oh, we just found another location in downtown London. Let's, you know, let's run out and take a look at this and see if this could work. And let's right. talk to this. And then, and he had casting in between too. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot, every day is a, is a new adventure. More like thriving much. on chaos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, what, during prep, during these times, you're going, oh, you know, like sometimes I'm sitting in my office going over things and going, I feel like I could probably be doing something else, but I, there's really nothing to do. I'm wasting a lot of time and I've got all this extra time. Why are we spending so much time in prep? We should be shooting already. You want to start shooting. And then as soon as the, sh- the first time you a week before shoot, and then suddenly oh my God, are we shooting already? And then you get <laughs> start shooting and it is, you can't slow down. There is a freight train on your back with a thousand people moving fast wow. and you got to just keep up with it and you can't slow down and you and can't doing all that good hesitate. Work, doing all that good prep it's, work makes it easier. I would assume. Yes. It makes it, it makes it doable. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Now is yeah. that fairly common that there's that much prep done before shooting no. or is that just the bond way, if you will? That is the bond and the budget way. Okay. If you have a big budget, I think our budget was 225. Then you have budgeted time to prep and you know that you have like, 12 locations around the world and you're, we were in seven different countries and sure. two, three different units that you have a lot of stuff to, to deal with. And all the car people, the construction people and all that stuff, all the special stuff that has to be built. So, but no, normal movies, again, it's totally dependent, I think, on budget. And I usually give extra days or weeks of free prep because they say, okay, we're going to bring you on two weeks before shoot. And I go, wait a second. That's not, I I need more time than that to prep. I need to see locations before you're going to choose everything. And then you're going to call me and say, okay, shoot this place. I'm going to say, well, this place doesn't work because the direction or this or that let's, let's be real about it. If it's money is the reason 
I will come in and do it on my own time because it's, you know, it's going to be better. Do that I can. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's always, I'd say it's, it's uh, budget dependent. It goes anywhere from two weeks to six weeks, I think, or eight weeks, six, five, six weeks is kind of a normal these days. Although who's, we'll see what happens with the new, the new real, the new reality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true with the whole, uh, pandemic stuff it's going to be really interesting to see how things change yeah because i don't know if you've read any of the protocol propositions for how to shoot but they're a little i think the most of them are untenable to do anything bigger than you know like a a two hundred thousand dollar five person movie it's so much that has to be dealt with at this point until there's a vaccine right yeah absolutely it's a different world all of a sudden it is (laughs) yeah there's no time to die. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned all the prep work and how that helps when you get to the actual onset filming and so on. And that <laughs> you said it's more like a freight train or whatever. We're going to ask what that kind of day looks like, but you're saying that's, that's really full bore. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, and for me, it's like, like it is on every movie. And I know I've talked to other DPs. And everybody says it's the same to them. The first day you get on set, you're like, do I really know what I'm doing? Am I capable of doing this? Have, is like, <laughs> have I ever done this before? It's like, it's like starting over again, all over again. And then you start going and you get the first half of the day going. You go, oh, yeah, this is what it's all about. This is how it starts. Sometimes they throw you into the first day is like a really heavy, big scene. And you go like, First, hopefully your AD is smart enough to say this isn't the best way to start off the movie the first yeah. day with a new, especially a new crew. Yes. These are people I'd never worked with before, except for Mark right. and and the first AD and the visual effects person. And on most movies these days, because you go to different states or wherever, you can't bring your own crew. You're with new people, so it's starting off that first day is is always a lot of freak out, but you keep it to yourself. Oh, and you know you keep up with things, and fortunately. One thing I really liked on Quantum, and it happened also on Finding Neverland, but it was less less enjoyable on that one, was that the British crews don't work more than a 10-hour working day. 10-hour okay. shoot, one-hour lunch. And it's not that they have a strong union. They just say, five o'clock, we're going to the pub. <laughs> we tried that on, on Finding Neverland. We had to complete a scene. And the AD says, well, we're going to wrap now. And Mark and I were both looking at each other and says, we have two setups to do on this scene we're already here everything's all set can't we just no the boys are ready to go (laughs) couldn't fight with them in the end i really appreciate a short day a 10-hour shoot day makes a lot of sense because you have a life even if you're on location Mm -hmm. you can get back to the hotel you can actually have a real dinner and you can get sleep and you're refreshed for the next day when we do these 14 16 hour days it's relentless, and especially when you get into six-day weeks, which we ended up doing on Quantum, almost all six-day weeks, because we had a squeezed schedule because of the uh, proposed actors' strike that was supposed to happen June first. Even though we were already in the in the Writers Guild strike, and then the actors' strike was supposed to happen. Yeah, it's a crazy industry. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. is. It is. Now we've talked about some of this that you've worked on, the other parts of your body of work you've done we've mentioned a few of these movies we mentioned monsters ball finding neverland kite runner rattlesnake host there's a bunch of them in here yeah and then you've got stay which is a totally different movie which i would imagine 
was pretty fun for you as a cinematographer to work on. So is there anything in your background that we haven't kind of mentioned that you want to highlight before we dive further into quantum? Well, background, I mean, I started off doing news, world news, European feature news and doc, like documentaries Right. Okay. Um, back in after I got out of art school and decided that I couldn't make a living making art films. Okay. Um, I gave up on it. So I decided to hit the commercial world and I got into doing documentaries and then music videos and commercials. And um, you were in Italy doing some of that too. And then I moved to Italy and started doing my first feature. My first three features were in Italy. And then, yeah, I mean, then I came back to the U.S. after 10 years, met Christopher Guest after a run of music videos and some commercials. And so I did three movies with Christopher right. between... 95 and 2005 well, his, those, are three, great. those are fun movies they're part of the highlight of my career it's like oh, no nice. more couldn't have more fun and work with better and more appreciative and a wonderful group of people and from waiting for Guffman up through for your consideration with all the actors that whole group we became really good friends and, and oh, you know the, the respect and in fact I was in London prepping Bond and I went to a, a a nightclub with Harry Shearer and Michael McKean because Harry's wife, Judith was doing a performance there. She's a singer, an amazing jazz singer and comedian. So she was doing a performance and Harry was going to stand in and play some bass with her for that performance. So we're there. And I remember sitting at the table with Michael and Harry and Michael just looked at me and he says, so now that you're Mr. 007 doing this Bond movie. Does that mean we're never going to get to work? You're, you're too big to work with us again? <laughs> and I said, absolutely not. Yeah, I would love to do another, another movie with Chris. And of course, after that, it didn't. Yeah. We didn't do another one. But I might be doing something with Harry coming up. Okay. I mean, dude, some of those were some of the most fun times of my life. Yeah. And in fact, during this, this uh, lockdown at home, We've been watching movies at night and doing some double features. And the other night we watched Best in Show, which I hadn't seen okay. in quite a while. There you go. And uh, yeah, and so that was that was a great experience. So that, that was a lot of fun. We just, uh, we, we just we just lost Fred Willard just really recently. Yeah. Yes, I know. It was, it was terrible. Yeah. yeah, talking to Harry and to uh, Jennifer Coolidge about that. It's a real shame. So when you were working on Quantum, how were the Ian production folks, the crew and everything to work for? Obviously, it's tense and intense, and the budgets are probably <laughs> the biggest you've had in any of the previous films you've done. How was that dynamic? They were among the most supportive producers I've ever worked with. Wow. Barbara great. and Michael were, I mean, they're totally about great to making it the best it can be in yeah. the Bond world. Yeah, like Cubby they said. They don't want it. Put it on the screen. <laughs> yes. Put it on the screen and make it in our, in our mold. You know, things change. We've, you know, at the times have changed. It's now 2007 at that point. Mm -hmm. So there's things that have changed. It's not as uh, misogynistic as it had been. Right. But they were all about giving us what we needed to do the right thing, to put on the screen what we had said we wanted to do. They were always supportive behind us. The only thing that I ever got a, a pushback on was in prep at the very beginning i suggested that we shoot the whole movie in 65 millimeter 70 millimeter and they said well show us you know show us what would it be like prove it so and i didn't have the time or the wherewithal to to shoot something original so i leaned on a friend of mine who was in this in retrospect was a big mistake 
He had a film that had been put together called As Good As It Gets. Okay. okay. And it was basically a comparison between 65 millimeter and 35 millimeter. And well, so they, we went over to, to Sony and we got the print. We projected it on the screen there and it was a real disappointment. And I'm, as I'm watching, I'm going, no, this is really not convincing anybody of anything. And we got out of there and they, they said, well, we're going to talk about it. But, you know, honestly, we don't think that there's really that much of a difference in what we saw on the screen to make it worth spending the extra two and a half million dollars. And I said, I can't argue with it. You know, it's like I couldn't. But they were extremely supportive. And it's as so much as that they let me do some testing with, at the time, the Red One camera. I contacted Jim Gennard, and he flew over to London in his private jet with his guy, Jared. And they brought over a couple of Red One cameras, which were brand new at the time, before the, the Mysterium X sensor. And we spent three, four days at Pinewood and in London shooting scenes on 35 and on the Red One, shooting some tests some, and some uh, rigs and car stuff. And I, I, I thought of using it for some special shots, not for the whole movie by any means. Mm-hmm. And we did the testing and they let us do it all. They let us present it. And some of the stuff I said, I would really like to use this camera for a few things because of some of the effects that I got out of it, the possibilities. And they were fine with it, but Sony said no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was at a point where Sony said, absolutely not. No red cameras on our movie. Oh, wow. And then finally they said, yes, you can use it, but they can't have any images of it. No talk in the press and no screen credits for red. And Jim said to me at that point, he says, well, what good is it for us then to, right. to do it? So, yeah. so wh- but no, they were, they were totally, totally the whole production crew. The, the, the PAs, the office, well, you know, everybody in the, in the back room and behind it were all completely wonderful and supportive. That's great. So was it digital or was it film? Quite it was film. All it was film. all 35. All, no yeah. blend, nothing. It was all 35. Nothing, okay. nothing digital. No, the, well, yes. The only digital was we had to do plates for the paleo sequence Okay. because we went to the paleo. They had been to the paleo, Barbara and Michael had gone to the paleo the year before okay. and saw it yeah. and decided this had to be part of the next movie. It is fabulous. It so is. That, was, that was a no-brainer. That had to be in the movie. So in June, we went on a 14-day bus tour, bus and plane tour around Italy looking for locations yeah. because the script was unfinished. Yes. So we drove around. This is my favorite story of the whole movie. Actually, the best time of the whole movie was this 14-day trip. It was a luxury vacation in a luxury bus and luxury hotels with amazing meals. The production location manager was a guy that I'd worked with in Venice as a company there doing location. Guido Cerasuolo has a company called Mestre Cinema. And we drove from, basically we flew to uh, Bari and looked around there and then drove over to Naples and then drove all the way up through to Rome, up Cinque Terre, over to Florence, from there up to the Alps, at the Austrian border. Yeah, yeah, Balzano and all those little uh, Through there. Bolzano and, yeah. and Merano. Yeah. We stopped at a, the most amazing spa hotel in, in Bolzano. It's incredible. Yeah, I, I spent um, one night in Bolzano. It's a beautiful little town. It's, it's a beautiful. Where the frozen yeah. man is. Yeah, yeah. I have I have a family from relatives from that part. Oh, right. But Guido guided this whole tour of ours by hotels and restaurants. So he always <laughs> knew we were going to stop for lunch at the best Amazing restaurant in Parma. It was phenomenal and incredible hotels, spectacular hotels. And then we got up to 
was at Stelvio Pass. And we mm-hmm. found the Stelvio Pass, which we, we scouted. And we said, this is great. We can do a car chase here. It'd be amazing. And then we found out at the end that it's only open for two weeks in June. And the rest <laughs> of the time, basically, there's snow there. So we couldn't use it. Couldn't plan on it. And then we went from there into Austria. We went to Switzerland and we looked at an underground cave with a lake. As we knew it was going to be too small to actually use in the movie, but we did it to see what it was really like and to take pictures and to get production designer to get ideas of what he could recreate. And then from there, we went to Austria to see the Tosca performance yeah. because they were going to keep it. It runs for two years and they decided that would be a good thing to put in to the script. That was so we watched the performance before we got there to prep it with the, with the director and the lighting designer yeah. and all. That was um, a great scene. In that. It was, that was a great yeah, scene. And they copied a, it. Boy, did they copy it in yeah. what movie did I just see? There's a recent espionage spy chase thing where they did a scene in an outdoor opera. Very much like it. I can't remember what it was. It Maybe that, that bad Michael Bay movie, Six Underground. Something I saw in the last six months. I go, well, this looks, this looks reminds familiar. me too much of the Tosca scene. Yeah. Too much. Well, this is this is one of the things Dan and I actually this do. This is what in we do. Podcast <laughs> is we, we we try to find where are these scenes that Connection. influenced other scenes. Mm-hmm. So, like the that vault scene in Mission Impossible, coming almost almost exactly. I mean, modernized, but yeah. right out of tough copy. Right? And yeah. Like, wow. Yes. Right. So we do. <laughs> well, you know, they say borrow from the best. Fun. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. that's fabulous. That sounds like a great trip. Obviously, oh, it was it was spectacular. Italy is beautiful, and how could you go wrong eating and and drinking in Italy? I mean, yeah, yeah I'm jealous. I want that now. Yeah, yeah I no, I do too. I want to go back to that yeah. same trip. It was originally I wasn't supposed to go on it. I was prepping another movie called. It was a small movie written by the guy who wrote adaptation, the book. It was I forget what it's called now. It was about a guy who was a sex addict who runs. Oh, works. the one with the fast binder? No, shame? no, not, not shame. shame. No, that's a Brazilian. That's a oh, brilliant movie. Yeah. Amazing movie. No, this was a much smaller movie with Clark Gregg starred in it and, and directed it. And it was supposed to, he, he's like a sex addict who works at a 1700s restoration village kind of thing, like a smithy town. Okay. And I was prepping with him. And I remember it was here. We had some pre-pro meetings at my house and talking about it. And then I got this call from Mark about this trip to go to do this scout throughout Italy. It was going to be in the middle of June or leave in June. And I go, God, I can't, I can't do it. Cause I've, I'm working on this movie with, with Clark. He said, well, okay, we'll send McConkey, who is our operator, Steadicam operator who'd been done like the last five, six movies with us. And I said, okay, yeah, he's, he's, he, he can check out everything and all that. And then one day I said, wait a second, I can't let McConkey have this vacation. <laughs> this is too good to be true. I really need to do this. What and I don't want to miss here? out on, well, also I don't want to miss out on choices that are being made for locations there you go. way beforehand. It's just not right. And this movie with Clark, I was like, I said, you know what? I'm really sorry, but it's early enough. I'm going to back out. I was, I was only, I'd only prepped it and talked with him for two or three days. Yeah. So I backed out of it. I don't think he was thrilled, but I backed out. And got on a plane and went to Italy. And in the end, McConkie couldn't have done the movie anyhow because they refused to have any American hmm. crew. Well, that's right. Yeah. Um, they could only have two Americans in the IA. And it was all because of Hollywood post-60s. Uh, and they refused to shoot on American soil because they wouldn't have any IA operators. We did have IA crew in Panama, but once they're off the soil and it was a separate 
section or something, it didn't trigger the, mm. the Hollywood post sixties because they don't want to pay the residuals. Right. Yeah. So McConkie going on that wonderful trip would have been a real nice vacation for him, but then he couldn't have done the movie anyhow. Right. Yeah. I tried to bring him in actually. At one point I did try to have my, my operator fired. He was not, he was not paying attention to what I was asking him to do. He was trying to do his own thing mm. and he was very rude about it. And I asked, I went to the producers and I asked to have them fired in exchange. And they said, well, let's see, you know, let's talk about it, let's see what we can do. And I said, and I want to bring in McConkie. And he said, no, you can't bring in an American. Sorry, wow. no Americans. So, and then in the end, it all worked out and George and I become friends again. And, yeah. and he's become a, a pretty big DP in his own right. He's done quite a few well-known movies, including that Elton John biopic. Right. And, and the, 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 Knights, the, the Kingsman yep. movies. Yeah. Yep. Well, we're talking about how one in movie influences another and so on and where these ideas all come from. In Finding Neverland, there's that brilliant ending of the film. Yeah. And there's several other monumental scenes in that film that, that are just spectacular. Roberto, when, when you came upon that idea for the ending where James and Peter are sitting on the bench and then they become transparent and disappear, leaving mm -hmm. just James Hatton Kane, I mean... How did you, did you come up with that? How did Yes, this... yes, I wow. did. That movie, actually, I, I had a lot of, there's a lot of scenes in there that I came up with that Mark embraced, as he generally tends to. You know, I, I, I don't get too many things rejected and things that fit. You know, sometimes I say a crazy idea that doesn't fit, but there were three or four things in there that really fit. So we were shooting that scene on the bench and, I, and Mark and I were talking and as the thing, when it, when the dialogue ends and all, I said, Hey, Mark, why don't we just lock off the camera, take them out, keep the camera rolling then. And then you can have them dissolve yes. just to the bench and then have the credits roll. And he just went, Oh my God, you found my ending for the movie. It's brilliant. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but I don't want it, the camera just to be locked off. I want it to be more dynamic than that. So I want it to be, we do the dolly back and we don't stop, but in the dolly, they disappear in the move. And I okay. said, okay. And the VFX guy was there with us. He said, well, it's going to have to be a motion control shot because otherwise, even if you do a perfect timing and everything, 24 frames a second, you're going to be slightly off. You can be a half a frame off or something like that, right. no matter how good your dolly grip is and all that. So, we had a company there and they brought out a sled, very simple motion control thing. All it really was a sled and a, a tilt, camera tilt and pan. And it jammed. <laughs> it malfunctioned. Uh, and so we said, we said, oh, I guess let's just do the, and Mark said, no, no, we got to, we got to do it the right way. And they said, okay, well, we can, we can come back. I think tomorrow we'll come back tomorrow and shoot it. Came back the next day and reshot with the move and the disappearing and the whole thing. And it's, yeah, it's, it was worth it. It's gorgeous. It's it. Yeah, it is. It yeah. works really, really well. Yeah. So that wasn't going to be the end. You found the end for him. The, well, that was the last thing that was written yeah. there on the bench and console himself. He consoles the kid and yeah, yeah, that, yeah. and it could have just been that and a yeah, fade out. It could have been, you know, a Truffaut yeah. Yeah. in Iris into black, you know, into right. that. And, but I said, wouldn't it be cool? Because it's, it's, it's the spirit of what the story yes. is. It's this, it's, it's Neverland. It's like they're, <laughs> they've always been there and they're never there. Yeah. You know, it's like they die, she dies, but she's not, you know, it's, yeah. so who knows where they go, but 
but leaving the hat and the cane is just a nice little perfect. It's a great touch. It really emblem. was. So it has that concept, as you always are saying, you learn from things you're doing, obviously, into where you go next. Has that concept reappeared in one form or another in any of your other films? Offhand, I can't think of anything. But in Finding Neverland, things like I know you had you had written to me and asked about, Barry and his wife go up the stairs and they yes, go into yes, separate yes, bedrooms. Yes, yes. And she goes into her room and he opens his. Yes. And it's it's the 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 lawn with the trees and he goes out to fly the guys. Love that it. was my idea. I well, said, because really they were going to two separate bedrooms and his bedroom was a closet, the way that house was built. Okay. It was a short closet, not a big one. And so I said, he's, they're both going to go in and we'll cut. And I go, well, wouldn't it be nice? Because I, I was looking for transitions always. Uh, that's you know? my next uh, thing I want to ask you about. Good. And, and it, was, it was, the next scene was he's out with Kate and the kids flying kites. Yeah. And I said, well, because so much of this is in his mind, he's thinking about, he's coming up with these ideas and it's to write a book and to, to, to play and whatever. Why don't have him just walk straight into the yeah. yard? So well, how do we do that? Goes, well, we'll put a green screen in that room, which yeah. was very tough because the green, the room is only about three feet deep. And we did a, a, a fabric green screen that came out and hit a wall and went around and all, but it was enough to pull a good mat. Yeah. And you, having could a, you could just, get the lighting in it, enough lighting in there? Yeah, just put a, probably a, a Kino tube over the, the doorway or something or a couple of tubes on the side. Yeah. And VFX did, you know, they probably had to do a rotoscope. But okay. That was a gorgeous scene. So yeah. that's, that, that's what we want to talk about next because transitions in movies is, is, the, is one of the keys. That's one of the things we always look for, Tom and I, when we're watching movies to see how one scene shifts into the next scene. And you really appreciate when that happens seamlessly and effectively. And we've looked at some of your other works besides Quantum and so on, like in Monsters Ball, the transition seems to be more direct, like, boom, cut to another scene. For instance, like when Hank is talking to the, the black man when he's standing on the side of the road with his two sons, which wasn't a, wasn't a pleasant conversation. But the scene switches, bam, right to the guards at the state penitentiary testing out the electric chair and there's many other transitions like that and camera angles and different things. Letitia sleeping nude, the shot from above, uh, mm -hmm. the, the shot of the guard in, on horseback. I love that guarding the prison. That was actually a second unit shot. I forgot. That's, we did have. That's a great shot. I had a, a, a really good cameraman down in New Orleans. I needed like three or four shots at the plantation at, at, because yeah. we, we didn't have time in Angola. We had five days there to shoot everything. Wow. And so I hired this guy, Francis, to shoot a few shots. And we told him what we needed. Yeah. And he, he got some atmospherics. Yeah, that was beautiful. It was great, the yeah. way it was shot, just almost ground level, just above the foliage and so on. Yeah. It's just perfect. And then Finding Neverland, we talked about a couple of the scenes already about going into the room and, and transitioning to the park. One of the ones we love, though, <laughs> the transitions is when James is dancing with the dog in the park. Yeah. And he tells the yeah. kids it's a bear and it transitions right. back and forth to the circus setting with him dancing with a bear. I mean, that's just great stuff. And yeah. so that's, that's another one of the transitions we love that, that. In, and that was always written films. into the script Yeah, that he's talking about. And then yeah. in, in the imagination, yes, you see the, the circus and the bear beautifully done. So I wanted to go back to stay again. Yeah, that that movie stay my, is all transitions. Question. Yes. I'm sorry. Constant. Stay, stay is all transitions. Yeah. Yes. And I would it's imagine intriguing. as a cinematographer, that was fun. 
to figure out all the different camera angles and stuff you were going to use. Uh, yeah, that was talk about that with that stay. Well, stay like in, in monsters ball, which was all predetermined all our shots and all our cuts from scene to scene, yeah. okay. because that's one of the things that helps me with transitions is going through the script with Mark or any director yeah. and talking about it and knowing how we're going to shoot a scene and knowing what the next scene that we're cutting to is. And it doesn't always end up that way in the edit. Sometimes things get shifted around, but generally I've got to go with that as the blueprint for, okay. you know, what the movie's going to be. So I try to plan shots that will transition into something. And especially it helps if you already know your new locations or the rooms or whatever you're going to be in. So, you know, something to transition to. I'm a little tired of the classic transition of, okay, you go to the drink on the tray, close up being carried around a room and then being brought into something, which is, a very typical transition or close-up of an, you know, an ashtray and the cigarette comes up and then you're in the next scene. I try to find things that are a little more dynamic or more interesting than just that, or even if it's a, just a visual frame that matches. Yes. That's not necessarily so transitional, but it's, it's, a, it's a visual match. Yeah. Stay, we plotted out the whole movie, of course. Mm -hmm. That had to be as so visual effects heavy, always planned to be. And so we knew where we had to do green screens and transitional things. And we knew that we wanted to have all these really cool transitions because that's the story. Right. The fact of Ewan is, and Naomi are basically are, they're all Ryan's character. Yeah. Right. It's yeah, just yeah. he, it's their great. faces that he sees when he's dying and he builds this in his last moments, he builds this narrative. Yes. So we wanted to make this switch between them, like where you see the bus, in the rain at night and gets off before he goes to the dance studio. You see in the bus and then the door opens the reflection and now it's yes, Ryan coming yes, out. Yes, yes, yes. Right. The morphing uh, scenes you, are terrific. <laughs> the only time we did a, a physical thing was on the staircase coming down the stairs mm -hmm. when he goes to collect him where they have this dialogue fight and they're like switching sides yes. and they're going back and forth and they're repeating each other's dialogue. Yeah. Right. One thing we did in, in and we shot it specifically in, in the beginning in uh, Ewan's psychiatrist's office at school, shot them both from both sides, facing both directions. Uh -huh. So you can intercut so they're looking at each other or both the exact same frame looking the same direction as just a lead into throwing the, the viewer out, right. throwing them off because you're going, that's an unusual cut. You're looking yeah, at the person you do that? Why would you and do he's that looking again? the same way and he's got the yeah. same background, but it's a different person. You're just changing the face in there, which normally you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. But here, I wanted to reinforce this whole thing of who is this character really? Yeah. And where's and, and playing with time. Like where Ewan gets out of the car at his mother at Ryan's mother's house. Yes. And the car door opens, he gets out, the camera booms up, and he's already up on the yeah. thing. Right. And and the, the the porch is empty, yeah. except for him. And then you cut to over his shoulder and she's sitting there. You know, it's a horror film. Yeah. Uh, trick but right. still using the, the the time warp and all those things to just yeah. to reinforce it's an intriguing film I, in, it really everyone is. should I see it. it by the way go see stay it's, it's and very underrated film. it yeah. didn't do very well at all really yeah which yeah, i didn't understand because it was that was well just they didn't movie. new regency didn't push it they were yeah. they were all loving it when they were seeing dailies and going this is fabulous this is amazing and then when it got cut and it got done and it got finished they goes Ooh, we don't know what to do with this. And they didn't really, they didn't advertise it. They didn't push it at all. Wow. It almost went straight to, you know, it was in the theater for contractually for, I think a week. Mm -hmm. And then 
it got uh, booted out. It did well in Germany and Brazil and Mexico. Yeah, right. it's a it's an intriguing film. Everyone should yeah. see it. So obviously, yeah. as a cinematographer, you're thinking about transitions all the time. And for Quantum of Solace, how difficult a task would that have been? Because if you look at the the, the pre-title chase sequence, in the first five seconds, there must be a dozen or more transitions it, just in that. How, how difficult in Quantum of Solace was it to do this, to take this, what you've learned about transitions in all these other movies to Quantum? I, I don't think it was terribly difficult for me in the body of the scenes that we did ourselves. Mm -hmm. You don't always know what's going to happen when second unit action unit takes over and how it's going to cut from a shot you did to their first shot. Right. You hope that the editor is you know, on board with making a, a good transition, which in generally they were. There was a second editor on that movie who was doing most of the action stuff. So I can't speak for his mindset. Mm -hmm. But I think because, again, Mark and I had planned out the whole movie shot by shot, scene by scene, we knew where we were going from one to the other. Yeah. And yeah. I was able to try as best as possible because that's also a very architecturally designed film, very graphic, yes. right? which we worked with Dennis Gassner, who's a brilliant production designer on making these spaces, locations, sets and everything work for, for the camera to get great angles and shots Beautiful. and be very graphic that we could use those graphic images to advance the story and to cut from one scene to the next. Yeah. Well, it seems like a lot of your, a lot of the movies you do have that type of a feel where you're really taking in where you are and, and opening it up wide to be able to see what you're looking at. Yeah, I try, I try to do that. And I had some issues on Kite Runner because I think there were some, some scenes where we did some shots that were really amazingly big landscape beauty to show you because you really need to feel this location. And I think that they were, a couple of them were cut too short. They were like kind of a blip and you didn't really get to breathe. <laughs> the Because I don't believe a movie should always just be yeah, like right. that, especially that kind of movie. Oh yeah, exactly. You need, you you need time. Sometimes you need scene. time just to, to breathe and get inspired and think about what just happened and then dive back into it. Well, yeah, like um, in that movie, there's the, there's a scene where there's the, the, the boys are outside the, the main part of the village and you can see the pomegranate tree. Yeah. And it took a while for me to kind of get absorbed into that red pomegranate on that tree. And it will, but, and if you cut that out too quickly, I would have missed that. Yeah. And then you come back around talking about the pomegranate and I'm like, oh, okay, that, that made sense there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we tried to, the material was there, believe me, you know, we shot enough and kept the camera rolling long enough on some of these things that it could have been used to, to give you time and place. Yeah. And in general, it should, this is the couple that I really remember the most were the, the shot where the two guys are driving in the Jeep around the lake heading mm -hmm. out. And we had the camera mounted on the car with the lake in the background for the entire dialogue mm -hmm. and have them inside talking. And it's a beautiful shot because yeah, that yeah. lake was incredible and the whole mountains and everything. And I think Matt ended up using like a two second cut of the outside and everything else was inside and you lost the whole outside. Wow. And I was like, why, why, <laughs> why just play? It plays so beautifully like that. There's nothing happening inside that's any different than seeing them through the windshields and feeling this whole environment that they're in. Right. That disappointed me. And then when they're crossing the, the border back 
with the kid when we have had the, at the fight and he's all beaten up in the back of the right. seat and they go through that the border that doesn't basically doesn't exist i mean it's an open land with a, a fence right you know a gate that goes up with the mountains in the background they're heading back there that he, he left that running for about three seconds instead of just letting the car drive off in the distance for a bit just to feel that magnificence of the hindu kush and the where that world was so when you say that, then let's go back into quantum and talk about the paleo scene for a minute, because yeah. Oh, in yeah. that one, you're cutting between that action of what's going on outside with this, in, this interrogation, and it kind of cuts back and forth a little bit. And is that something that's done in terms of the, the pre-production stuff and the, the, the prep work, or is that, okay, here's what we've got. Let's figure out how we're going to then edit it together. I think that was an editorial choice later on. I think we were always aware that you wanted to know something about what's going on, where this location is, what's going on outside this room right. before you're thrust into it. So you have sort of a, there's sort of some anxiety in that this guy's escaping down through here and you go, oh shit, there's that yeah. thing going on out there. Is he going to like end up right in the middle of it or outside <laughs> or whatever? So yeah, that was probably enhanced in the edit. But I was starting to say earlier about digital. I'll go back to that on the film. When we went to the Palio in June, saw what we needed to do, chose camera positions. They had already reserved a few box seats so we could put cameras in, in seats. The year before, they reserved them already. Mm -hmm. uh, but we went and looked, and I found places where we could shoot and got permissions. And we went back in July and shot the second Palio, which was in July. Mm -hmm. And I think I had six operators on that. But we also knew that all that action stuff, the chase in the middle of the square, where the, right. mm -hmm. it's not really a square, but where he comes up and out and is going to chase the guy across, could not be done during the real palio. Right. There was no way. Right. So we, at the time, we got state-of-the-art Harry D21 digital cameras. We got four of those. With the visual effects guy, we chose four positions in the outskirts around the buildings of the whole palio and shot overlapping plates of all of the stands and the action, the people in the background. He then, when we got to, to shoot at the Palio, we shot it on location again, the final, the, the action scene, but with just about 150 extras in the square with us mm -hmm. and nobody in the stands that we then used those plates uh, to put okay. into the stand. So it felt like it was, actually happening there and they did a great job yeah they really did an amazing job wow. so that was digital digital background mm -hmm. yeah. and then the other digital thing we did was the skydiving where they're they're holding each other they got the one parachute and they're coming down mark said specifically i remember in telling the vfx guy i don't want this to look like the bucket list where <laughs> robin williams or whoever it is is or jack nicholson they're coming down in this skydiving but it looks so fake Right. It looks just like they they shot them standing in place. And says, I want this to feel real. It's got to feel real. So we found a skydiving rehearsal practice tube outside of London that was big. It was probably a 20-foot diameter with viewing panels. And so they got <laughs> Daniel and Olga in there floating up this 140-mile-an-hour fan yeah. blowing up at them. We put four DALSA digital 4K cameras with these enormous refrigerator size recorders in a separate room, built four of those. And I think we also had six Sony F900s shooting also for elements. 
shot the whole thing of them also with, with stunt doubles floating around. And then for one pass, George with the Ari two, three, five actually floated in there with them and got in close-ups of <laughs> oh, Olga wow. and Daniel doing this flying, it, it looks which was great. pretty incredible. Yeah. yeah. It looks fabulous. And then that was put into a sky background, you know, exterior sky background and falling into the, into the cave. So those were the two elements of digital that were in Quantum Solace. Everything else was 35 millimeter. Yeah. Okay. And, and it looks perfect though. There's no, it's not like CGI stuff that you see in some other films where you go, yeah. oh, geez, you know, that looks like, <laughs> yeah, this looks beautiful. It looks good. Yeah. It was, it, it worked out. Okay. This seems like a good spot to take a break, Roberto. Yeah. So we'll wrap up part one here. Be sure to subscribe to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, through your favorite podcast app. Or you can listen on our website, spymovienavigator.com, and give us a five-star rating when you review us. Send us a voice message and let us know what you think and what you'd like us to talk about next. This has been Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzato. Of spymovienavigator.com. Join us for part two of our talk with Roberto Schaefer, director of photography for Quantum of Solace, in our next episode of Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. <laughs>